All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right, well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson, and with me today from a much different location than normal, but he's still with us, is Marty Frederick. Marty, what's going on, bro? How's it going? I'm in the secret lair. What? The secret. <laughs> I'm in, I'm in, or, or as the super uber conservative Christians like to say, I'm in the secret place, Josh. <laughs> I thought you were going to like take that in a different direction and say you're in like your rapture bunker <laughs> or some, <laughs> something no. like that. No, no, I'm, I'm at, I'm at my job, I guess you could call it. Um, oh, cool. What is that job, Marty, for people who don't know? Yeah. So I build, uh, I build a guitar pedals for a company called Doc Lloyd Audio. Um, and it's, uh, he does a compressor and overdrive and a fuzz. Uh, he's a buddy of mine. I've played with, I've played in a band with him since I was in high school. Um, and so, yeah, I'm here today working because I'm working my, I guess you would call it my quote unquote real job, um, at REI, uh, Tuesday through Friday this week. So I'm not going to be able to like work any other day. So I decided to come out today and, uh, podcast from this secret place. Nice. So. Well done. Excuse my dogs barking in the background. They have no common courtesy. No, it's all right. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and there, there may be people that, you know, like things because, you know, this is their house. So I'll sure. just, uh, if, they, if they come in, we'll just say, hey, what's up, Ann? Or hey, what's up, Russ? And we'll just move on. So sounds good, bro. <laughs> all right. Well, we, so we have a guest with us today, Marty. And uh, he's say. actually, yeah, <laughs> that's good. You can see on Zoom. I'm glad. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they're, so they're actually, just so our listeners know, there's somebody that's been on the show before. Um, so we're not going to be able to ask them our hockey question because the answer they gave previously was the San Jose Sharks. And so listeners try to figure out who that is. If you can remember, I'll give you a second. Okay. Your second's up with us today is uh, Dan Coke. Dan, how's it going, man? I guess, are you not going to put my name in the description of the episode? Because what are the chances somebody listens all the way to this point and hasn't even read the title? <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point. I mean, maybe yeah. we just have totally devoted listeners that just listen to it no matter what. They see the logo pop up and the episodes, they cover the text <laughs> and they just go, they click the logo. I don't care. I don't care who they're talking to. Give it to me. 
Yeah, straight up. That's our listenership, Dan. That's a, a blind a loyalty. Great. Yeah. Literally, literally <laughs> blind loyalty. Yeah, straight well, you know, up. Dan, we do have a backup question, and I think this will be this might be harder for you than okay. other people because it's probably you know more so like in your like down in your realm of things. <clears throat> who is who is your favorite live band you've seen ever? Like the favorite your favorite live concert? Man, I feel like I just had the answer to this recently. Um, so I'll I'll give. I'll give like, the, I mean, the, the real true answer is probably Paul McCartney. Yeah. I mean, that was just, well, actually, no, I, I saw the Beach Boys do their 50th anniversary of Pet Sounds and uh, Beach Boys are my favorite band. So that was kind of like the best concert experience. Um, but the, the kind of sneakier answer that I was uh, not, not shocked by, but I saw Wilco uh, about five years <laughs> ago and they were just the tightest band I had ever seen play together. Like mm. I knew they would be good. Of course it's Wilco, but I was shocked. I will see them every time I ever can in the future. Awesome. That's, That's a, a cool sad answer. question right now in the middle of <laughs> coronavirus. I know. You've I got know. me all nostalgic and bummed now, Marty. The, you know, it's, it's interesting. The last band I saw live was Drew Holcomb and the neighbors, but that was in like September. And since then, you know, there's been no, there's been no live. Well, I guess, I guess I saw, I saw a Christmas show uh, with a guy named Dan Rodriguez, but other than that, um, it's been a yeah. while. I saw uh, my friend's Motion City soundtrack came back to town on a reunion run in January. And then we had our son about a month later. So I, I wasn't, I barely made it to that one. Put it that way. I, I pulled out some, had to, basically had to get a favor from the wife for yeah. that show but we had been friends with them for 10 12 years or something so i needed to go dude sick i love motion city soundtrack i've only ever seen yeah. them once i saw them at warp tour of course you know we're all teenagers yeah. <laughs> see all the good bands <laughs> warp tour <laughs> shoot dope well sweet dan so just uh quickly for people who uh who are not familiar with you can you just fill us in a little bit like who you are uh what you do um yeah. And then also it's been like over a year since we last talked. And I know, I mean, you just mentioned it, but you, you've had some significant life changes. So what's going on in the world of Dan Cope? Yeah. So um, I guess it, I'll start with the, in the last year, I had my first son, my first child. Um, he was born in February. And also in the last year, I started a, a doctorate of clinical psychology program. So what I'm up to these days is I, I podcast, of course, you have permission which I know we'll chat about for a second. Um, I write advertising music for, for the moment for my day job, but eventually I will be a therapist for my day job and I'm in school for that. Um, and then my background, raised non-denominational evangelical, got a philosophy degree, quit college in the middle of that degree for 10 years and toured in a rock and roll band called Sherwood. And then I finished up that degree after I got married and moved to Seattle from California. And uh, I'm one of those like kind of rock rock musicians turned podcasters, a la Bad Christian podcast, and that's kind of how I got my start, uh, doing kind of politics and psychology, and then moving more into faith stuff, uh, since that's what I'm more interested in, faith and psychology again, but less politics. And I think that's it. Is that it? Yeah, that's enough. 
Yeah, perfect. Good deal, man. So yeah, you you mentioned uh, your podcast that you do. You have permission, which I mean, I've I've told you before. It's my favorite podcast, and listeners know that. So, <laughs> but but for those who Josh, are still there's something on your nose, there's something brown in your nose, Josh. <laughs> oh man, no. Oh. <laughs> Great. Well, anyway, since I'm being a, a kiss ass, um, yeah. So it is my it is my favorite podcast, and I tell it I you know push listeners there all the time. Uh, but for those of you know our listeners who I haven't convinced yet, like what what is your your podcast and like how's that been going for you? It's basically, it's trying to take both Christianity seriously and taking the modern world seriously. My own intuition is that when you do that, you end up with something like progressive Christianity, but that's not the only place people land who take that stuff seriously. That's kind of where I've landed. Uh, it's going really well. I'm, I'm, I guess if there's any change, I'm, I'm slightly focusing more on psychology and the integration of the two, uh, obviously just because of my interest in the program. But it's pretty much a business as usual, just having, uh, I think, fascinating conversations with really interesting and smart people about just kind of all the questions that people are asking who have gone through some kind of faith change process and are wanting to take things seriously uh, and finding certain of the old answers they were given insufficient. And so they're looking for better answers. And uh, so am I. So we're doing that together. So yeah, it's awesome, man. There, you have a really cool like community uh, built up as well. Incredible. Uh, the Facebook group is insane. So that's pretty pretty dope. Yeah, I I'm continually like pleasantly surprised by how awesome it is. Yeah, for sure. Sweet man. Well, today we so last time you were on, uh, we talked about universalism, which was a lot of fun. Uh, but we had like a completely different host then. That's like back in the the Andy days, so to speak. And the theology uh, doesn't suck days. Yeah, exactly right. Theology yeah. doesn't suck days, which listeners, just in case you don't know this, Dan actually was uh, extremely helpful in helping us rebrand and come up with a new name and all that kind of stuff. Yes. Uh, I love that stuff. So fun. Yeah, it's pretty dope. And so we did that universalism episode, which was awesome. Still one of our most downloaded episodes. And uh, today, though, I wanted to talk about um, kind of this idea of the, the overlap or the combination of psychology and theology. And so just for starters, what is your, I mean, you mentioned it a little bit, but what is your current experience level within the realm of psychology? Yeah, so I'm like 25% of the way through the school part of a doctorate. So think of me as less than a master's, but more than someone who's never done any graduate work in psychology. Uh, and then I am 0% of the way through like life experience, clinical experience with, with clients. So talk to me in 15 years and I'll have 10 years of client experience then to draw on. So most of my own interest comes is about kind of the research stuff because I just haven't had any clients yet. And a little bit that I've learned through being a client myself. Uh, I've, I've been in therapy for about five years, maybe hmm. six years, I guess, six years. And um, absolutely love it. Best money I've ever spent is what I, I tend to say. So, yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm at. I'm 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 intrigued. I'm very much still learning. i a lot. I have a lot more questions than answers at this point. <laughs> right on. Marty. Hello. Are you guys there? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, great. So, um, so there, there tends to be a lot of fear about psychology among Christians. I, I think about, you know, within like my family, um, you know, just within some people that I know outside of family too, where you say, hey, you know, it's that's something that maybe you should go talk to somebody about. And they immediately put up the arms of like, no way, I'll, I, will, I will never do that. Um, and uh, can, can I just ask, why do you think that is? Yeah, I think it's it's helpful to first recognize that, you know, I think all three of us grew up within a particular branch of Christianity, which is evangelicalism. And that's what we call low church Christianity, right? So it's not Catholicism or Anglicanism or Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, if we had grown up mainline Protestant, for instance, we would not have those stories of people being worried about psychology. If we had grown up white Catholic, we probably wouldn't. If we had grown up like Latin American Catholic, then we, there would be a different worry about psychology because it's like they don't trust individualism as much for you know cultural reasons. So just situating ourselves, we happen to grow up in the zeitgeist of evangelicalism and the fear of psychology in that group, um, I think mainly is about uh, a distrust of institutions. So within evangelicalism, uh, we tend to found parallel institutions. So this is why you have Christian music, you have Christian movies, Christian publishing companies and bookstores, you know, entire life. Think about Lifeway Christian books uh, before they went out of business or whatever, these massive stores that had like 10 kinds of media on almost every subject. I mean, it's a whole ecosystem, right? You, you do get that a little bit. You have these little Catholic bookstores attached to, uh, you know, cathedrals and stuff, but they're staffed by a single person. There's, you know, a couple in each city. The, the, the robustness of the evangelical parallel institution complex is massive compared to other branches of Christianity. And so there's just a general distrust of institutions, which would include the type of universities that churn out therapists. Uh, and and um, another aspect is therapists themselves might not have the kind of motivations that um, conservative Christians would think that they ought to have. So for instance, you might think uh, at all costs, keep a marriage together. That is the Christian duty of anybody in any position of leadership. And a therapist might go, uh, let's see if there's some abuse going on here. And if there is, then we might consider ending this thing or taking a separation until uh, the abuser um, changes. You know, like th they're going to have their own kind of, there's a different rubric. Um, and then, uh, so I've been taking, I took notes on these questions, which is why I have multiple answers to each one. A third thing would be that, re so there's, uh, a good distinction we should make here between clinical psychology, that is like what you do with clients, okay, clinical clients, and then research psychology, which is like figuring out how the brain works, basically, either as an individual or at a group level or whatever. So research psychologists, I think, are often seen as giving competing explanations rather than the Bible or what the church says or what theology would say. So there's a sense that when a psychologist says, oh, that's confirmation bias, that they're kind of like undermining something good about the church. Uh, and I think ideally we would have these two disciplines sort of looking to each other um, in an integrated way, which is, which is not always easy to do. Mm. Yeah, I think, 
that's really helpful, Dan. And I, I mean, just in my experience, so I, I also um, go to therapy. I started, um, oh goodness, I don't even remember when it was. It was warm outside still, so maybe about a year ago. I started uh, with one individual and I did a bunch of research and asked around to friends like, hey, I specifically want a Christian psychologist, you know, whatever. Found a dude who was recommended, um, had, you know, his doctorate and everything in psychology, but then he also like got an MDiv from some seminary I never heard of. (laughs) And so I was like, all right, let's give it a try. And basically it didn't work out for me. Um, This guy my big struggle was like, I would bring him these existential like questions within my faith. And he'd be like, yeah, but what does the Bible say? Like, well, (laughs) yeah. So, so that would be um, something like biblical counseling or Christian, like there are these different types of counseling people can do. I mean, it could just be a person who did all the normal psychological training, you know, got his doctorate and all of that, but just maybe he actually does not believe that you should do therapy the way that most people do therapy. Um, but I would, I would not ever say that to a client because uh, it's actually not effective. Like one, one of the things that um, has dovetailed really nicely between the kind of politics podcasting I did years ago and the psychological training is thinking about how people actually change, how they actually come to new opinions, how they actually learn to tell a different story about their own life. You have to do it yourself. So one, one big difference between a certain kind of a pastor and uh, a, not, a not good pastor and a, and a good therapist would be a bad pastor says, well, I hear you, son. Of course, it's a man in this case. I suppose it could be a woman, but there are a lot fewer of, the, of them. Well, I hear you, son, uh, but here's what the Bible says, and this is what God wants from us. Okay, well, maybe that's true. A therapist would say, would, would artfully get you to rethink the thing you're talking about until, until they have helped you come to an answer. Now, that that answer is not always going to accord exactly with what the person thinks the Bible teaches. However, it's way more likely to stick. Mm. If I have come to it myself as the client and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm just putting these things together. When my wife says this, I'm relating it back to this and I feel guilty about X, whatever. That type of process, that's going to stick so mm. much better than, well, what, what does the Bible say? Yeah, <laughs> right. Not- yeah, dude, my experience shows that so much because that it's actually funny you say that because like now thinking back, I went to this person basically because I was uber pissed off at the church, like been screwed over twice at two different churches at a great place now. So that, that's a good thing. And like yeah. I wanted this guy to give me answers. And like that's just kind of what he did, like whatever. And then when these questions came up and he was like, well, what does the Bible say? I'm like, well, it's not very clear. <laughs> Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't say. And so now yeah. my new, my new person, um, she's awesome. Uh, her name is Sid and she's more of a spiritual director, but she still has the the classical training and, um, but she's just like way awesome and does exactly yeah. what you're talking about. Help you come to, uh, your own answers and conclusions. And she's, she's great. So 
Like we could, we could imagine a different version of that where your therapist says something like, let's say you're dealing with talking to your family about politics, okay, which is a big problem for a lot of people right now. And they say, well, um, you know, you've said that you're a Christian. Uh, one of Jesus's, you know, teachings is love your enemies. How, do you think that that applies? Have your, has your family become an enemy in, in some way? In what sense? What does that do for you? And then have the person think through, there are many possible ways to apply love your enemies in a particular situation. That's a kind of, what's different there is you're taking the stated goals of the client that they have already, in this case, already told you that they want to adhere to. And you're challenging them to think about how that applies to them. And you're being a sounding board. That kind of thing's great. That's helping people be internally consistent, right? To act on their own desires. Uh, to, for instance, desires to live like Jesus, right? So you're, you're helping them integrate that, but that's really different than, well, this top-down authority of what the Bible says, quote unquote. Yeah, and, and I, think, I think a lot of times we, we turn to the Bible for answers. And, it, you know, for those of us that either don't read the Bible often, and uh, I'm not saying those of us insinuating myself, by the way. Um, <laughs> um, and for those of us that maybe don't necessarily attend church all the time, uh, every week or something like that. And for those of us that, I mean, who's, who in general, your faith walk is not something that's like number one in your life, which, which to be honest, I, I would, I would venture to guess has a lot is there's a lot more American Christians that way then there are American Christians that have a healthy devotional life and sit down and read the Bible every day. And they really know where all the answers are. Those of us that are that way need more than what does the Bible say? Because I, I, I think that, I think what it sounds like is, um, well, you know, I've read all this stuff and I'm surprised you haven't come up with this answer yet. Um, so can you tell us what the Bible says? And, and I think pastors have that mentality about the way they bring us to the answer is they have this way of making you walk away feeling like crap. <laughs> like you walk away saying like, well, you know, I guess maybe, maybe my problem is I just, I just haven't, I just haven't, I haven't prayed hard enough. Yeah. Uh, I haven't read the Bible deep enough. I haven't, you know, like I, I went to my concordance in the Bible, which by the way, I think is probably, you know, that's advanced for a lot of people to say, well, there's this index in the back of my Bible called the concordance that I can look things up. And I found sadness and I read the 12 verses that it recommended about sadness. But the problem is I don't actually feel any better. I don't actually feel like this has helped. And so then when my pastor says, well, you know, can you tell me what the Bible says about that? Well, sure, I can tell you the 12 verses I read, but at the same time, I don't feel better. Um, and, and, I, and so I think that's been my thing is, is, is I've considered psychology and just like this, the understanding of the human mind. Um, for so, you know, and, and, and one of the things I remember being told in seminary all the time is, as a pastor, you are not a counselor. So if someone comes to you with an issue, your first and best job is to refer them to a professional. You're not a counselor, but your, your desire is going to want to help be to help this person. Um, but I think oftentimes pastors forget that 
or they just have never been told that and they think they are a counselor. Well, a lot um, of pastors don't go to seminary, Marty. That's also true. <laughs> Let's not forget that. <laughs> and a lot of but, you, especially a lot of evangelical pastors never go to seminary. They don't get that. They don't really get any mental health training, even just to say, refer to someone with mental health training. Yeah. Right. And, and I think, I think what, I think what I find to be the most difficult aspect about that is that your pastor if they want to be the counselor in your situation. And it's oftentimes not something like, I'm just having a little trouble sleeping. It's something like my husband and I are about to get a divorce. Right. By the you time know, you show up in the pastor's office, like things yeah. are fairly bad. Right? Yeah. 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 Like, you know, it's, it's my husband and I are going to get a divorce. It's, you know, my father just died. It's, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a number of, of crazy things that are deeper than simply let's find 12 verses to read together and we'll meet once a week for a month. And after that, everything will be cured. And I think pastors for some reason seem to think that, well, if I can just find a spiritual answer to the qualm that they're, that they're dealing with, they won't need anything else and everything will be, everything will just be fine. And I wonder if it's, a white savior complex. And, I, and, and so, I mean, can you talk a little bit about that when it comes to that? Cause, cause to me, there seems to be a lot more quote unquote white savior pastors or want to be white savior pastors out there these days who think they have all the answers. Um, when what they really need to do is just refer someone to a professional. Yeah. So I would, I would probably interpret it a little bit less harshly. Um, less of the savior complex thing. And I would first want to think of it just in terms of tools. So if all you've done is go to seminary, or especially if you've never gone to seminary, and you're just kind of, you, you've basically been told um, by the people who formed you into a pastor. So even if you go to seminary, you've got some sort of, you know, ordination process, even in the Baptist church, which has like sort of the lowest bar for ordination, that's kind of their whole thing. Uh, you know, like uh, you've, you're being told, you're being groomed to think basically you are now in the, pl you are now in the place of God, like, like the role of a high priest or something like that. And you're, you're going to mediate these good things from God to your congregants. Uh, and of course, God has the ultimate answers. Um, this is the, this is the source of ultimate meaning. And, but the only tools you have are, Bible studies or maybe books written by other pastors that they carry at the Lifeway store or the pastor's conferences that you're going to where you hear from other pastors about what they've done. So you don't really have resources for a marriage falling apart, for bipolar disorder, for even identifying if it is bipolar disorder, right? Like, so I would first think of it in terms of just like a lack of tools and, and, and therefore, part of one of those tools is a lack of imagination about, well, what are the possible causes here? You know, a lot of times people can have a medical issue that ends up causing psychological symptoms, right? So you could literally have a brain lesion in an area that is causing you to make bad decisions. That's a real thing. So somebody's got to have the training to go, wait a minute. Actually, I think we should have a neurologist look at this person first because 
this is a weird combination of symptoms, right? Personality changes, stuff like that can be brain tumors, uh, even non-cancerous, just lesions or whatever. So it's a lack of training and tools primarily is what I would think of it as. That's not easy to solve. Of course, not everybody has the time and money to go to school or the inclination to go to school for this kind of thing. Sure. And, and I think, I think what that ultimately leads to is that advice that I heard, you know, in seminary myself is just, you know, your role is to, you know, meet with somebody and to talk with them. You know, if they want to meet with you, don't just say to someone, Hey, you know, Hey pastor, can I meet with you this week? Oh no, just go see a professional. I mean, you have no right, idea right. what they're going to talk to you about, but as soon as they come in the office and they say, you know, I just discovered that my spouse has been having an affair for the last six years of our marriage. And um, I didn't know. And now I just found this out and my entire world is wrecked. I think the pastor's role in that spot is to pray with that person is to be a support network for that person and for their spouse, especially if they both go to church to that same church together, if they're a part of the congregation. But I think the pastor's role is to say, listen, you know, I just have to humbly say, I'm, I am not a professional in this realm. Um, I'm certainly there to support you and your spouse. I'm certainly there to help you in any way I can. And our church will be praying for you and be alongside of you. But the best place for you is to see a professional who can work this through with you and your spouse. Um, and I think this is actually a particularly good example for why we could, why we ought to be less worried about therapists. So because, for instance, you might have a pastor who quotes, I don't remember if it's the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, Matthew or Luke. One of them, Jesus says, I tell you, never get divorced. The other one, he says, never get divorced, except in the case of infidelity. I don't remember which is which. So oftentimes a pastor will say, uh, and I, I, I remember my dad saying growing up, or abuse. So some people have just added in abuse out of common sense, basically. Sure. So you could imagine a pastor saying, well, she cheated on you. Um, the biblical, you know, if you want to stay with her, great, but you're biblically justified in leaving her. Yeah. Um, okay, that's sure. But wouldn't it be interesting to ask, why did she cheat on you? Ask her that, have her work through that. What if actually there's just like something about her story? I have a friend whose wife cheated on him earlier on in their marriage. He did not leave her. They worked through it. It had to do with her story and the way she was raised and the way she had been burned in the past and how she had learned to act out when she was afraid that things were not going to go well, right? He forgave her. They kept going. They have beautiful kids. So there's actually a version where the therapist, of course there's a version, but there's a version where the therapist actually helps keep the marriage together by looking at other reasons that are not, there's not going to be verses for, yeah. right? Like getting to the internal motivations, the letter of the law of Jesus says, yeah, divorce her. You're good. She cheated on you. But actually like, let's be curious, yeah. you know? And, and of course there are going to be uh, husbands who have cheated and who don't want to reconcile. And it's just their way of getting out of a marriage. They don't want to be in. Well, mm -hmm. there's not a lot of therapists is going to be able to do you know, for that, except maybe help the wife understand that that is what, that it's not her fault or something like that. Right. So sure, you can have sure. personal counseling after the separation. Sure. And, and but, I think, some, yeah, 
I think sometimes the the following the letter of the law mentality is a lot more pharisaical than yep. saying how, what what can we determine about this relationship or or maybe the person cheated and you don't realize that there's a part there, that you've had a part of that you know exactly and, you know yes. there's there there was a situation with my wife and I eight or nine months ago where you know um, I, I wound up losing my job over it. Um, but the biggest thing was losing the job was actually the best thing that could have happened to me because I wind up I wound up being able to see in side of where I had been falling short as a husband and as a man and as a father all of those years. Yeah. And it wasn't it, it it was something that I never would have seen going like doing a devotional time with my pastor every morning from 8.30 to 9 a.m. before right. we started yeah. work. It was something that, I mean, it, it had gotten to that place and I lost my job and I'm like, I felt like, oh my gosh, woe is me. And, and then as, as I started to get into it deeper, I started, oh my gosh, this actually has a lot more to do with me than it does with anybody else. And there's, there's like, that's an area that if I'm going to go back into ministry, man, I got to work on that. And I, and I think that oftentimes as Christians, we aren't willing to look inside, I think, because we're taught how damaging and how terrible sin is. And I think there's a, like we had a, we, we talked about this a couple months ago with a guest. There's such a, an element of shame in today's evangelical Christianity when it comes to sin that I think oftentimes we don't really know what to do with it. Um, so, I mean, I, I, at this point could be belabored for, for forever and forever forever and ever. Uh, but, but I think the idea here is that, you know, as you're saying, and as we're saying, I mean, as pastors, I think we aren't necessarily as trained up to be psychologists um, as we would hope to be sometimes. And then I also think, I mean, maybe this is a bold statement, but maybe as pastors, maybe if we're going to be a pastor, maybe we aren't supposed to be trained up in how to be a good counselor. Maybe we're supposed to be a pastor and allow counselors to be counselors yeah, instead for sure. of trying to do both and. I, I don't know. Basically learn learn the wisdom to dis, to discern what would be best for your parishioners. I mean, I yeah. think that's, you know, obviously there's other things. You, you, you give sermons or you run a youth ministry or, you know, there's other parts of your job. But in terms of pastoral care, it's like, it's discernment. A lot of it is discernment. Yeah. And uh, one, of the, one of the best things actually for Christians and therapy is when their pastors know a handful of good, solid therapists in their area. Yeah. That my, I found my therapist through our pastor. He was the first person our pastor recommended. He was like, I think you're really going to like this guy. And I loved him. And he is one of the reasons I'm now becoming a therapist myself. So uh, I can speak to the power of a pastor who, so I would encourage pastors to get to know, like go get coffee, get beer with, some local clinicians in your area and, and feel it out and, and have some people, if you don't already, that you feel comfortable recommending people to. Wait, pastors can have beer, Dan? Don't you think? <laughs> well, yeah, I hopefully, on... because I just pounded one from the start of this interview <laughs> until now. <laughs> it's 11 a.m. here, 1140 a.m. here, so I, I'm not, I haven't joined you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's, that's fair. It's 240 here. So, But, Dan, you don't have to say it. it's 5 o'clock somewhere. So. It's true. <laughs> in the Atlantic Ocean right now. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, man. Well, so uh, just to kind of help push things along, I was interested in specifically um, you like, so based off what I can uh, 
like figure out from listening uh, to you speak on your podcast and things like that. It seems to me that psychology um, has had, or like the study of it has had an impact on your faith or spiritual journey overall. And so I wanted to kind of like get at that, like what kind of impact has it had for you? Yeah. So I think there's like the, the clinical, again, the clinical psychology versus research psychology. So clinically as a client in therapy for six years, it has just helped me in innumerable ways related to my faith. Um, I I've had the, actually had the benefit and, and pleasure of my therapist used to run a theology journal when he was younger and is still kind of involved with it. And so he really understood sort of faith changes that were going on for me. He had gone through most of them himself, uh, but was very delicate in the way that he handled that. But then on the kind of more the research side, I think that um, I was looking to theology to explain things that it's not theology's job to explain. So for instance, uh, I'll probably talk about politics a couple times here. We don't need to like go crazy into it, but a lot of people ask themselves the question, how did 81% of white evangelicals vote for Donald Trump? Um, especially people more my age than your age, Josh, like who remember the nineties and Bill Clinton and all of the pontificating by evangelical leaders about how he's unfit for office because of these moral failings and all of this stuff. So I was wanting theology to explain how this could happen. And I just found that psychology explained it better. And um, that is, so if, if I'm trying to explain and understand people's behavior, I find psychology to be more to the point. That's kind of its job, right? That is, that is literally what research psychology does. It says, we, we're born here, we're human beings, we have all these behaviors, why? Or can we describe them? How can we understand them better? And it's very effective at that. I, I find it to be a very effective tool at explaining human behavior, which then I can integrate with my theology. So recently I interviewed Miroslav Wolf, the theologian uh, at Yale, and it's, it's coming out, um, I think, next week. Uh, and he, in talking with him, the way that I, I sort of came to understand it is like theology gives me my like north, my true north on my compass. This is what I'm pointing to. I'm a Christian. My life is informed by the life and teachings of Jesus. This is what I'm aiming toward. Psychology helps me with mechanisms. How am I going to get there? What is in the way for me as I try and go north? What's in the way for my client as they try and go north? What's in the way for my listeners as they're trying to go north, right? Even if those are slightly different norths, right? Or, you know, whatever. It's not, you don't agree on everything. But within the Christian tradition, we're going to agree on a lot. And, and so psychology is like, well, what's actually, what's actually getting in the way right now of this thing that I want to see in my life or in my listeners' lives or my wife's life or whatever, you know? Yeah, dude, that straight up too. Cause I think, I mean, just in my experience so far, that's what I've found as well is like the, there's been, so psychology has helped me for one, see the spiritual abuse that has happened in my past, which is insane. And like, every time I go see my counselor or therapist, Sid, like that shit blows my mind. Like, how was I so blind to this? 
So psychology informs that, but it also, it, it is like, I mean, exactly like you're saying, it has shown me the roadblocks to accepting um, what I, you know, believe to be the ultimate truth or something like that, whatever language you want to put around this. Um, basically there's psychological issues that I'm coming up against that are preventing me from fully engaging in my relationship with God. Um, and like, that's crazy. So psychology has been insanely helpful for me, especially within the past, um, like three or four months when I started seeing this person, Sid, she has worked wonders because she has some training in basically spiritual trauma or what? Yeah. I mean that, but also she just like has been through it herself. Like she, I don't know how to explain it, man. I mean, her book, actually her book that she recently put out called, uh, does God really like me is fantastic. Ooh. Like, does God really like me? Yeah. Yeah, I write that down. It's super good. I have it right here. Oh, I'm actually, I'm working through it with my college students. Um, does God really like me? Discovering the God who wants to be with us. Dude, Sid Holsclaw, holy shit. That's all <laughs> I have to say. She's awesome. Well, so you, you, you let something out there that I think is interesting. You, you said you go in there and you look and you, you think, how was I so blind? And I, the way I took you to mean that was like in a kind of a shaming yourself way of like, man, how could I have not been better and seen this stuff when it was right in front of my face? But another way of asking that question is, no, specifically how? How was I blind? What were the mechanisms by which I was not able to see this or other people in a similar instance would not be able to see this? And that's where the research is helpful. And you can actually get people closer to understanding themselves and their story by studying you know, people ongoing over time, the, the, the research psychology community, as it learns more and more about why we do what we do or what the, what the causal mechanisms are, what is the explanation? You know, and an explanation is just different than, than goals, right? It's just, it's just how did it physically happen? How did I, why did I not, why did this brain region not light up when this person said this, right? It's, that's really what we're asking. Yeah. Oh, dude, most definitely. And like, for me, like one of the big things, so I'm really, I'm really bad at shaming myself. I've learned this through therapy. <laughs> I do you mean, it a you're, lot. You mean you're really good at it? I'm really yeah. good at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I have, yeah. I have a propensity to bring immense amounts of shame upon myself, um, which is, it, that's a whole other whatever. But um, and is probably related to having been the recipient of spiritual abuse because oh, shame up. is. Shame is basically the most, as I, as far as I understand it, I plan to be some somewhat of an expert in that field, but I'm not yet. But uh, to shame the person for, you know, with the the stamp of God, basically to say, oh, you are not living up to God's standards is like tremendously powerful yeah. tool. Oh, well, Dan, if if you need anyone to speak to to get like specific like experience in that realm josh and i can uh recommend a few people for you to speak with um who could tell you like they they would like we could just we could set you up um i think actually i won't i won't use their name on the show today but dan you you josh and i actually have a mutual friend um who would be able to uh corroborate collaborate corroborate our story uh if you if you were interested so (laughs) oh i believe it i mean i think it's so widespread that i i don't really even need 
I don't need corroboration at this point. Uh, it, it's, um, yeah, anyway, the, the evidence is ample that it's a problem, especially, uh, well, it's a problem in different ways, like, for instance, in Catholicism, right, the, the sexual angle of spiritual abuse there being um, stronger, frankly, but it's, it's still around in Protestant circles. And um, yeah, anyway, that's, we don't have to go down sure. uh, that road. Yeah, well, and I think I think what Josh is saying is is also, I mean, it's it's a, it's a definite thing that oftentimes we walk around not even realizing that there are things that are affecting us in an immense way. Um, I, I think things, I mean, yeah. it, it's it's the stereotypical thing to say these days, but even like things like COVID have brought about uh, new psychological problems and wonders that we wouldn't have even imagined. I mean, for instance, my my grandfather died about a month ago now, or, or just maybe a few weeks ago. Uh, but I wasn't able to go see him Yeah. Uh, before he passed in the hospital. And so when I was at his wake and then his funeral subsequently, um, it's not that I wasn't sad, but it wasn't the level in which I remember thinking, man, when my grandpa dies, that's going to be really rough on me. And, and I, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that I didn't go see him in the final days and get to say goodbye. And so although that would have been difficult, that would have been better closure than not having that. Right. And then having to watch his casket lowered into the ground and think, okay, I mean, he's, you know, all right, well, I guess that's over. And, 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 yeah. and that brings about a, a, something that maybe not everybody has to experience, but then you think about all these people that have died because of COVID specifically, and they haven't had loved ones by their side. I mean, that's a completely different level of psychological trauma that none of us or many of us have never had to face. Um, yeah, I, I, I tend to think of that as actually the worst part of the pandemic. Uh, there's something so central to the grieving and burying process and, and yeah. having, I, I, I would, I can't imagine dying alone, you yeah. know, like, especially at old age when you think, Hey, I made it to the place where I'm probably going to get to die with my family around me. Yeah. And then you don't, I mean, that ultimate transition from life to death to just be like, maybe there's a nurse there that you just met. Uh, and, and then like you're saying too, the effects for the, for the family members left behind. Uh, there's a great conversation, by the way. I don't know if you want to link to this, but on the crackers and grape juice podcast, they interviewed uh, the author and poet Thomas Lynch who is, he's a poet and, a, and an essayist, but his day job is running the family business, which is a mortuary. And he writes about that. He has poems about it. And he has a book. Um, he wrote a, like an award-winning memoir about it that I can't remember what it's called. Super good. Uh, I can send you a link to it later. But he was talking about, as a, as a, you know, basically a mortician, talking about the, like what he knows about the process of grieving and and the finality of the funeral service and whatever, and how that's a real massive cost uh, sort of worldwide. Yeah. And I think ultimately, as, you know, Josh was talking about saying, you know, I walked in and, you know, there was all these things that I can't believe I didn't see it before. I think there's going to be trauma for thousands and thousands of people that are going, they're going to need to figure out where some sort of feeling that they have is coming from a fear or a shame or a sense of loss without being able to pinpoint why. And they're not going to even realize that it was losing a loved one in this time. 
right. or something like that. And so I, I, I really liked what you said about that with, you know, um, it's not necessarily why didn't I see this in like a, a self-shaming kind of way, but literally why? I mean, you know, what's the reason that yeah. de de in determining that reason is, is everything that we need to get us into that next place of saying, how do I move out of this shame? How do I move out of this sadness, this fear, yeah. whatever that emotion is that they're feeling? So it makes where my mind goes is like, it would be awesome for somebody to develop like an imaginative practice that people can do maybe with their therapist about their loved one that died, that who they weren't able to like, I don't know. I'm not the person to develop that, but somebody could do it and test it. And like, and rate people's, um, you know, feelings about their, their past loved one before and after. And I mean, like, this is the kind of thing that psychological research can provide when it's done right, is like, somebody could really come up with something. And then maybe potentially millions of people that hundreds of thousands, whatever in the US, and elsewhere could, could like, oh, and then maybe in the future, it's for other people who are not able to, like, you know, maybe COVID sparks this ingenuity in some researcher that then that's a tool that people can use for decades to come if for some other reason they weren't able to be there right you know or, or whatever sure sure yeah most definitely man so let's let's actually kind of jump in that direction and talk about the the actual the overlap of psychology and theology which we've been doing this whole freaking time anyway but uh i i just want to find out like where your interest uh comes from in that overlap uh, because I think, unfortunately, unless I'm just completely blind to it, there's not too many people that are at least like writing books or putting resources out there about this. I mean, I think of like Richard Beck and like Jonathan Haidt, really, other than that. Maybe well, he's I'm not lost. doing any, Haidt's not doing any theology. He's just a That's true. That's fair. That's fair. So Richard Beck is a good example. Yeah, the, I mean, there's, there was like a, oh, there is a wave of quote unquote, uh, integrated stuff about Christianity and psychology. Um, we read a lot of it at school. It's a lot of like white evangelicals um, kind of assuming a monolithic understanding of Christianity that happens to look a lot like white evangelicalism. That's not all of it. Um, you know, I've interviewed people uh, on, you have permission, like Peter Hill and Mary Clements uh, at Biola and Fuller respectively, who have done really cool work and are doing really good integration work. Like I interviewed um, Peter Hill about the psychology of religious fundamentalism. So he and two of his colleagues uh, came up with like a model basically, and they describe it pictorially. This is how fundamentalist psychology works as opposed to non-fundamentalist psychology. And I found that super helpful for instance. So yeah. there is some really good integration work and then there's some bad integration work. <laughs> I'll give, you, um, I'll give you an example of the kind of question that I find interesting. Okay. So we talked about the, will you go back to the spouse infidelity um, situation? It doesn't matter if it was the husband or the wife. On a classic theism view, well, I don't even want to say that. On a, on a particular view of God that many people have, um, they say that God chooses everything that happens to them and that it's some kind of a test or a winnowing process or God must have done this for some reason for me to change in some way. And so you might find yourself racking your brain for why God would want to have your spouse cheat on you. What is he, what's God trying to get 
you to realize what's God trying to say through that, something like that. So that's, you might think of it that way. That would be a way to think theologically about a thing that happened to you. But if you apply like an open theism or a process theology kind of a lens to a situation like that, um, for instance, process theology emphasizes that God is like imminent in every single moment, but that God is never coercively determining the future. So in that case, God did not have it happen to you in any, in any meaningful sense. God allowed it in some sense, insofar as God allows everything that happens. But God's role in a situation like that would be, you would you'd probably think more about the future. You would think, okay, so if my conviction is that at every moment, God is luring God's creatures toward the good and the right, what's God doing in this moment? We've recognized the infidelity. We've started therapy. We're looking at our pasts. What's the next move for us? Where might God be calling us toward reconciliation, toward whatever? So that would be a theological difference that would have real implications for how you process through something like an infidelity, as one example. Yeah, that I, man, it that's so good too, and that that's really helpful. And I think, well, me personally, I I kind of lean more towards the open theism and process kind of view of things. Uh, the ter- the determinist stuff, just I I don't know, I can't handle it because, in my opinion, it just makes you know turns God into a giant ass. Um, I'm basically with you. (laughs) And I don't think God is that. So there's probably better ways to do the determinist angle than I just did. Since I'm not in that world, I probably, I can't present it in the best light. Here's another, uh, here's another one. Let's say you leave fundamentalism. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, probably there are some patterns that people who leave fundamentalism end up finding, Right it would be really great to know those patterns so that you can look back on your process and not beat yourself up about it. Mm. Or let's say you are a survivor of spiritual abuse, like in your case, Josh. Well, people have written books about what people tend to report, how, they, how it tended to happen, how they were groomed for that abuse, what they tend to question about themselves in the wake of it. And researchers can look at this and can give you a write books for therapists, for clinicians who work with those clients. Here are some things to be asking, right? Because these are the kind of things that tend to come up for people. All that stuff is like so helpful. And that's basically, those are basically psychological questions. What changes in people's minds and their experience when they leave fundamentalism? Mm -hmm. And there's going to be some patterns. Yeah. Yeah, straight up. That's why I think uh, like the work of Mark Karras is so helpful. Uh, he just came out recently with a book called Religious Refugees, and it was great. Right. Uh, we talked to him, I think sometime last week, maybe the week before. Uh, I don't know if that episode will be out by the time we drop this one or not, but his his stuff was was brilliant, super helpful. Yeah, he's going to be, I'm going to be interviewing him too as well for that book soon. Nice. And we That's also did up. an episode uh, a couple months ago about narcissism in the church. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, with Chuck. Yeah, and that that was like, and as Josh and I read that book together, uh, I mean, as we talked about in that episode, I mean, like, it was as if the situation that we had been in, that Chuck had been there and observed and taken notes and then put it directly verbatim into that book. Uh, and we had talked with other people that had worked at the same place and they had said, oh my gosh, I can't believe 
how dead on this is. I mean, that it was just so, it was so interesting to see. But I mean, that research is so helpful because as I read that book, it helped me to start to see, okay, I wasn't crazy for feeling this way. You know, I wasn't out of my mind for, you know, walking away from that feeling like, man, that really messed me up. I mean, I, I remember leaving that role and going to a different role uh, and it being probably three to three to six months um, where I would make a mistake and I would go to bed thinking like, oh my gosh, like what's going to happen tomorrow when the mistake is discovered? And like, man, I'm going to really be in trouble this time. Am I going to lose my job? And like, I remember my boss having to say like, it's okay, man. It's a mistake. Like it happens. It's all right. And like, I know that in the past you would have been in big trouble, but it's okay. It's all right. And like that guy was so good at pulling me out of that. Yeah. And it's almost as if that's exactly why I had to be there in that place in that time, because that specific individual was so good at understanding how to speak to someone who had been through that. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so Chuck's book is a perfect example of a, in, of a really good integration of psychology and theology. He's like, here's narcissism. We know a lot about narcissism. People have done really good research on it. Let's apply it to the church. Boom. Yeah. That's that's exactly what I'm talking about. I love that stuff. Uh, my interview with him got messed up timing-wise, but I, I already – all my questions are written, and I'll be interviewing him as well soon. Yeah. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah, Chuck was great, man. We we loved uh, talking with him, and it was, it was super helpful. But let's, um, let's jump to some examples of, you know, psychology and theology in action. Uh, the first one that I wanted to talk about is not – I mean – necessarily an integration of the two i'll integrate it don't worry do it yes because it's been so freaking helpful dude like thank you for recommending that book to me that specifically so i'm talking about the righteous mind by jonathan height for listeners uh brilliant so let's let's go there the the righteous mind elephant and the rider what's going yeah. on yeah so the elephant and the rider is is height's metaphor um, you, you may have also heard it called system one and system two thinking, which is Daniel Kahneman's metaphor. It, it basically maps onto the same thing. So what, um, what cognitive psychologists have determined through mountains of evidence is it's called dual process theory. That's the technical name for it. The idea is that our brains do two different kinds of thinking. One is automatic and reflexive and uses very little calories and the other is slow deliberative we're thinking through stuff we're really processing it that uses a lot of calories so an example of the the elephant is uh the automatic and reflexive stuff so for instance um my, my the example i use for the dual process theory is i can be driving a car and talking to you at the same time so I'm driving, you're sitting in the passenger seat, and you ask me, hey, Dan, what do you think about Kant, the philosopher? Okay, now, I'm going to have to think about how to answer that because I studied Kant in college, but I didn't really read very much of it, and I don't spend a lot of time thinking about Kant. I haven't applied his thought to my life in a long time. That is a system to, that's a writer. I got to really think about that. Meanwhile, my elephant is driving the car. I don't have to think about driving the car. It has been baked in. I can now drive with very little effort, okay? So the question is, for any given thing that we have an opinion about or whatever, is it the rider or the elephant? And um, 
here's what people have kind of found, kind of to our dismay. Psychologists have found that basically the heart, the elephant decides, and the mind or the rider justifies the decision of the heart. Here's a great example. Um, motivated reasoning is also one of the terms, for, or one of the consequences of that is the idea of motivated reasoning, that we actually aren't that, we aren't super rational. We look for evidence that confirms what we already believe. Uh, there's a really great classic social psychology, psychology example where they present people with uh, political policies and they ask them what they think about it. They present the exact same policy, but they tell them that it was from Republicans or they tell them it was from Democrats. And then they ask them their own party loyalty, right? So the more conservative you are, if you say I'm very conservative or very liberal, the more you will rate the quality of the policy based on who they told you it was from, regardless of the policy itself. So if you describe as very liberal, you will give a 50% percentage higher point or whatever it is if they say oh this is from speaker nancy pelosi then this is from you know uh speaker of the house uh what's his name mitch mcconnell or uh senate majority leader mitch mcconnell so we do this right um and an example of applying this to christianity would be proof texting so i have a belief in something i have this bible which has verses that say all kinds of things, I'm going to find the verse that accords with the thing I already believe or that I already lean toward or that I identify with or whatever. So Mike Pence will stand up there and, and quote Romans to obey the laws of the land when we're talking about detention centers and cages along the border. But nobody will get up and say, obey the law of the land if they don't want to wear a mask or whatever the thing is. They won't bring that verse out because that verse does not, you know what I'm saying? And we all do this, right and left, progressive and traditional. This is just a feature of the human mind. And let me just add actually that this is not all bad, right? Like I don't have time to review every policy proposal that is submitted in Congress uh, or put on, you know, the ballot or whatever. There are a lot of laws that, you know, like I, it's helpful to have a shortcut. Remember I talked at the beginning about energy level. So the automatic processes don't use that many calories. They don't use that much mental energy. I could like a true democracy where everyone voted on everything would is impossible. It'd be exhausting. We wouldn't have time for it. So we need these shortcuts, right? But sometimes those shortcuts end up hurting. And in the, in the instance of proof texting, for instance, that can do a lot of damage because if people aren't aware that they're proof texting, then they're basically just justifying whatever they happen to be into and then putting God's stamp of approval on it, which can be very dangerous and can lead to, of course, spiritual abuse. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think too, Dan, just to, it, I want to see if, if I'm applying this correctly to like a super current thing. So let's talk about racism for a second. We have, so we have these like split second, like affective responses, right? Um, when something is presented to us. And so a lot of times, I think this is why we can say, oh, I don't actively hate black people, but we can have affective responses that, we're, that are, we're unconscious of, that we don't know about, that have been ingrained into our brains through television or movies or radio shows or just experience, whatever, 
that sets off like a warning or a trigger or something in your mind that still affords you the ability to hold racist thoughts and ideas regardless if you act on them or not and so like is yeah. that does that make sense am i yeah i there's i think it's good to distinguish between inherent bias and okay. more like conscious racism so inherent bias is uh you know they they have these tools to measure it i've taken some of these tests um as part of class for a class we did and uh it's it's very it's very common i mean i have sort of split second bias against non-western non-white people and even like they i did one with like you know american monuments and like monuments in other countries and and how quickly you can um basically there are these really interesting tests where you're it's how quickly can you uh, associate the word good with the Washington Monument versus the word good with the Taj Mahal or something like, right? It's like these, it's how quickly can your mind make the associations or safe with a Caucasian face versus safe with an African-American face. Um, and these are probably unavoidable. So by this kind of deep level inherent bias is is probably the result of like, Meaning I can't personally, there's nothing I could have done to not have them, right? Um, it's, it's not totally clear how much I can do to change them, but I can at least be aware that I have it so that in certain instances, I can tell my rider, my system two, to kick on and override my elephant. So that may not matter day to day, but let's say I am hiring for a position or let's say I'm a judge adjudicating cases in a court of law, uh, recognizing that bias and consciously being aware of it could go quite a long way to making sure that I don't perpetuate a system of you know, continued injustice or something like that. But that's a, that's a little different than conscious racism, which is like black people can't be trusted, you know, or, or like, Latinos are lazy, something like that, right? That would be, a, that's a little different than the inherent bias stuff is very automatic and it has more to do with like the kinds of things that we have been exposed to in our lives. Yeah, that's, that's really good. And actually there's been, from what I know, um, there's been a huge drive. I mean, not that we want to go here today in this, uh, in this conversation, but uh, towards uh, police departments to go through inherent bias training um, that like already in so many different places, places like admissions offices and colleges, they need to go through inherent, bi inherent bias trainings um, so that when they see someone's name on an application, they don't immediately feel one way about that individual one way or the other, whether, whether it be race or sex or whatever it might be. Um, and so that's, those right. are all really, really important things. And you know, it's, it's something to recognize that uh, a lot of us, hold without necessarily realizing that we do um which so the there's actually some really interesting stuff on this just really briefly so there are certain jobs where you, if you're a cop and you're dealing in person with citizens or whatever uh you, you're you have to right but there are situations where uh more effective than trying to get rid of people's bias is just to change the mechanism of the process so for instance, Malcolm Gladwell tells this story of a particular symphony that found that they were hiring players 
who were attractive or white or whatever. So they actually just started screening players uh, or listening to them behind a screen so they couldn't see them. Because actually, if you're putting together an orchestra, it really doesn't matter at all what someone looks like. Uh, Moneyball, the Moneyball film, they talk about the weird, the pitcher who has the weird way of throwing. And so he's probably worth $2 million a year, but the A's pick him up for $200,000 a year because people don't like the look of the way he throws. But it doesn't matter. All that you need to do is for him to pitch pitch well and get outs, right? Like uh, the, the way he looks is actually inconsequential. So there are some ways that you can um, – so hiring, for instance. Some companies are moving to like less interviews because they actually find that the biases of the interviewers are getting in the way of finding the kind of cl- – uh, Uh, prospective employees that they actually want and that a record of what people have done, their written responses, their whatever might actually be a better indicator of who they are. So I I don't know a ton about that. That's not my field. I don't plan to go into that field, but there's just some really interesting stuff around that question. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, so I think the next example uh, we've, Josh and I have talked about this before uh, with a couple different guests in the past uh, but just I'm going to pose the example and get your response. Uh, psychology and purity culture. Yeah, so purity culture is really interesting. I, I was trying to think about this because Josh sent me, you know, these topics beforehand. W- one question we might ask about purity culture is, how was it so widespread and so popular in our community um, as opposed to other communities? And so I have a few ideas. Um, I'll give them as kind of a bullet point, and you guys can talk about, we can talk about whatever one you want. So discussed psychology, um, this is one of the things that Richard Beck, who we mentioned earlier, writes about in his book, Unclean, is fantastic. And it's a really good example of using, uh, he has this really cool spot where he uses all the biblical metaphors for sin, which there's like 40 different analogies, metaphors in the text, and then lines them up with the module of psychology that they relate to. So for instance, missing the mark is like a performance metaphor for sin, uh, but stained, impurity. Well, that's a different kind of a metaphor for sin. That actually activates a different part of the brain. It activates this module for disgust, which most people believe evolved to basically keep us away from gore, from like infected wounds, from rotten food that could make us sick. You know, if you see like a an apple all full of worms and flies, it's gross. You, you don't want to put that apple in your mouth. You don't have to teach a kid not to eat that apple. You know it's gross. It, it's automatic, right? So sex, not always, but often activates the same purity uh, disgust module. So if I, for instance, let's say everybody in my whole life has taught me that gay sex is sinful. Well, there's also a layer that like when I imagine gay sex, it's gross. So that will actually reinforce that, yeah, it probably is sinful. But actually, whether it's gross to me or not, it's probably unrelated to whether it's sinful because there's a bunch of gross things that are not sinful. For instance, Peter, kill and eat. You can eat all of these animals, but I actually don't really want to be there when they're killing the animals uh, that's gross. I don't want to watch that either. I don't want to see them make sausage out of intestines and liver and fat. That's gross, but it's not sinful. I mean, if you're maybe if you're like a vegetarian, but you get, you get what I'm saying. There are things that are gross that are non not morally related, 
Um, and so that's one thing that we might think about is this discussed, uh, discussed psychology. Another one briefly is the parallel institutions, which we mentioned earlier. So you, you've got a distrust in public education and you have a, a real hunger for alternative programs that could do better. Um, another one is the individual fear. So this, the psychology of fear around AIDS in the 80s and 90s and other STIs, that's another angle for why, why parents were so quick to just throw their kids into this curriculum. Because, well, I don't want them to get AIDS. Uh, and then there also, there's an interesting thing there with AIDS and, and other things like that that are rare. The more we read about them and hear about them in the news, the more likely we are to think that they will happen to us. Um, that's called the, uh, oh shoot, availability heuristic. Uh, is that what it is? I don't know. Anyway, it doesn't matter what it's called. And then the last one, uh, there's plausibility structures. So this is the idea that like something seems more plausible, the greater percentage of the people around you also believe it. So for instance, the inherent sexism around purity culture was basically accepted by most evangelicals. Men are better than women, at least in terms of certain things that they can do. Uh, men's sexuality in purity culture, the boys get a massive pass compared to the girls. Um, to use, back to Richard Beck's thing, we use performance analogies for the boys. Well, you, you messed up. You know, you missed the mark. You need to get back up and try again. But for girls, we talk about you've, you've become impure. And we don't really talk about that with boys. So we disproportionately apply the discussed metaphors to women and not to men. And I think we do that because of an inherent sexism that is, seems plausible because everybody agrees with it. Uh, and then the other one on plausibility structures is premarital sex. The Bible is clear on premarital sex. I can't tell you how many times I heard that growing up. It's not clear on premarital sex. The Bible is not clear on this. You can get that from it. It is a plausible reading, but it is not the only reading. Jesus is wholly uninterested in the nuclear family in the Gospels. He, uh, I mean, anyway, it's just not there. And um, even polygamy is normal in about a third or a half of the Bible. It's just, it's gymnastics, but everybody said it. And I just totally assumed it was true. And so the plausibility structure was very high for the idea that the Bible's clear about premarital sex. And then finally, back to proof texting. So if I challenge that, if I say, mom, are you sure the Bible says that? I read this other thing. She could, and this is not a real story, I'm not indicting my mom here, but she could pull out a text that, but see, look, Jesus said this, or this is in this passage. So look, the Bible is clear. And that's again, that confirmation bias, that motivated reasoning. So that's a lot. Those are like four different angles on this question. We could talk about any of them or none of them or whatever. Yeah, they're, I think they're all super helpful, man. And like, especially to the, the one that stands out the most in my mind always though. And I, I mean, I'm sure this is because of personal reasons, but I always come back to the LGBTQ question or the homosexuality question because uh, two of my brothers, so out of my family, I have two brothers, biological and an adopted sister. My two biological brothers are gay. Uh, one of my best friends <laughs> is an openly gay man that I worked with in a Methodist church. Um, and so like, I constantly come back to this question and the psychological aspect of things has actually helped me 
uh, helped to push me more into the affirming position. Like once I started to hear some of those kind of things, it made a ton of sense. And then also the patriarchy argument um, that you had an episode on also just like was fantastic. It was super helpful because it was not just like an emotional argument. It wasn't just like, oh, but my friend is gay kind of thing. It was like a legit, here we go. So I think all of this is ridiculously helpful in that, especially too, because people often say, oh, the Bible is clear on homosexuality. You're like, well, is it though? <laughs> it's, it's actually not that clear. I mean, right. I, I, I think that the biblical authors did believe it was sinful. So I would maybe disagree with someone like Matthew Vines or whatever. But at the same time, you'd have to do most of the passages that people say are about sex are about homosexuality actually just say sexual immorality and they assume yeah. that that's part of sexual immorality and so when you recognize that that you have to go well you need an argument for why this is included in sexual immorality and i think you can give that argument um it's more from a lot of it's actually from stuff outside of the bible from things other people were writing at the same time or even common graffiti that they have excavated from the time of the New Testament where some of the words that Paul uses were used in graffiti and stuff like that, which I, I don't know a ton about, but I've interviewed people who know more about it than I do. <laughs> yeah, it's always interesting to me too, when it comes to something historical and we're talking about, you know, well, this is what they believed back then, you know, as you're talking about like, oh, well, I think the, the biblical authors, they, they felt this way or that way. You know, as a historian, if, if, if you can't prove something beyond a shadow of a doubt, you typically don't call it fact. <laughs> so, you know, and, and, you know when, when you look back in history and you say, you know, we have this evidence to prove that this is specifically, so Jesus specifically said, quote unquote, according to me, you know, homosexuality is immoral and it should never be practiced. And that, that's a factual statement. Not only can it be corroborated, in scripture, but it can be corroborated in historical, secular documents too. Okay, now we can say beyond a shadow of a doubt, Jesus felt this way. But using inferences is not often a historical practice to, to, make, a, to make a proving point. But I find that the church often likes to do that. And it's not just on these types of topics. It's also with things along the lines of, um, like, I remember being and i this may have been explained to me improperly so if it if so and you're you're a reformed person out there listening or or someone who actually knows you can say that's not true at all then i would love to know that but the way that baptism uh infant baptism in the reformed tradition was explained to me was you can read these specific texts and you can infer that that meant that infants were to be baptized you know for instance when it said abraham needs to circumcise his entire household, you can infer that there were likely infants that were a part of that. And so they were a part of that covenant as well. And so that leads us to believe that later on, when Paul says, you're not supposed to be circumcised anymore, you don't need to do that. You just need to be baptized. That that was inferring that infants ought to be baptized. And so that was the, that was the way infant baptism as the theological answer and only way of baptism was described to me within the reformed church now again i realized that could be not the full answer and i'm i'm willing to accept it because i'm not a part of that tradition but to me that that inference of well if we're going to look at this and it, we're going to have it we're going to make an if then statement about baptism and then make it fact 
that's not often how general historians will go about doing their work. Um, yeah, I think that what you're getting at, the way I would describe what you're getting at is the difference between certainty and discernment. Yeah. And uh, there is, I think it's very human to want certainty. I think that it really, it relates back to what we were talking about. We want to put things into the elephant. We want to put them into system one so that we don't have to spend all this time thinking about it. We don't, we don't, it's exhausting to do that. And so certainty lets us just, okay, we know that. And now I don't have to think about it anymore. When in reality, the world actually just requires discernment. I have a little phrase that I like to use, which is it's discernment all the way down. Every bit of it is discernment. So it's discernment to consider the, the evidence for baptism, infant or adult baptism. It, it's not clear. It's discernment um, to think about whether I should even trust the tradition I was raised with. Uh, if I had been raised in a fundamentalist jihadist cult, I would need discernment to get out of it. Uh, I would be presented with all kinds of things that were presented to me as certain fact, and I and they would be false. So how would I know that I should not become a suicide bomber? It, it would require discernment of some kind, right? We we just need it. it. It's the only real way that we can find truth. And you know, a good historian, I think, actually will lean into that and say this evidence supports this conclusion. But historians never have all the evidence. It's impossible. You can't replay the tape. And even if you could replay the tape, from whose perspective? There, there's just no, we don't ever hit bedrock. We never hit certainty bedrock on almost anything. Maybe math, you know, some mathematical stuff or, you, you know, you might, you have such high confidence in certain things that it approaches certainty. I have very high confidence that unless something mechanical goes wrong, I'm not going to fall out of this chair. Right, like I don't need to think about it. I don't need to spend my time worrying about it. Which words in the gospel are from the historical Jesus of Nazareth? I don't have certainty about that. I never will. Yeah. That's impossible to know. If you just say, well, whatever's in the Bible is true. Okay, great. That kicks the can down the road. Why do I trust the Bible? What's the evidence for that? And eventually we're going to get down to discernment. There's no way around it. So we would be better off recognizing that and learning to live with some ambiguity even though it is more mentally costly if we want to know that things, if we want to be closer to the truth, basically. Yeah. And, and I think, I think the key there is, is finding is, is pointing out that discernment. It's okay to say, you know, I've discerned based off of this evidence that this is the, this is the place that we need to be, or this is the, this is the logical path, but I don't often agree when it's a, well, I've spent some time discerning this and then that must be fact. There's no question. And oh so, yeah. 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 <laughs> so people, I think, people can use that word in bad faith, of course. Yeah. Right. Sure. Yeah. Sweet. All right, man. Well, that's, that's super good. And I know uh, that we need to kind of shut this thing down. Uh, otherwise we could talk your ear off all day, Dan. Um, <laughs> but one thing that I know has come up um, from listening to you multiple times is this idea of contemplative practice, um, which has been something that I've been exploring more recently and absolutely love it, recommend it to anybody and everybody. Um, but like, I was interested to see if your study and understanding of psychology plays into contemplative practice at all. Like if there's an overlap there 
or anything like that? That just seems like an interesting question to me. That's a great question. Um, I would say I'm, I'm earlier on in thinking about that one. I don't know a ton of the research yet about mindfulness. I'm sure we will get to that later on in the program. But there is a lot of evidence um, that mindfulness is helpful. So that's just like a basic, basic meditation. It's like, um, you know, watching your thoughts, essentially, like calming your mind uh, and removing distractions, calming the monkey mind, they often call it in, in Eastern thought, which is an incredibly accurate description of my own mind when I try and <laughs> meditate. Um, it lowers blood pressure. It, uh, it does all kinds of stuff. Like it, it has these sort of tangible um, physical effects. And what I, I have basically a lot more questions than answers on this. I wonder what the relationship is for me, for instance, the spiritual experience I had when I began doing contemplative practice is um, as I calmed my own mind and I think maybe got rid of some anxieties and stuff that were, that were there in the moment, like I felt God's presence quite quickly. Not everybody experiences it that way that was my experience the first few times. Um, and so it was almost like God was waiting there for me to do that, for me to kind of get my own ego out of the way of my own. I, I don't, these terms that people throw out, I'm, I'm, I, I don't know what they mean. I don't even know what I mean when I say ego. I feel like I'm just repeating Richard Rohr in yeah. a way that I don't even <laughs> understand him. So take all these, take, take this with a bigger grain of salt than anything I've said before is what I'm saying. So I don't, I don't know. I definitely plan on practicing mindfulness with my clients in the future. And I'm very interested in uh, thinking through and learning more about what it, how it relates to faith. Um, I do find it really interesting that there is basically some version of contemplative practice in every religious tradition. Uh, and so there's something about it that works, that people who have sought God have found helpful. It also might be worth thinking about um, some aspect of each religious tradition as a primitive form of psychology. I, primitive is maybe the wrong word. I just mean non-scientific, but asking some of the same questions and using the language that was available at the time. I mean that in a really good sense. I mean that in the sense of wisdom tradition. Uh, and in fact, Jonathan Haidt, before he wrote um, The Righteous Mind, wrote a book called The Happiness Hypothesis, which was basically a social psychologist looking at the wisdom traditions and what they had what they had already determined was true that psychology has now proven. So th that's another overlap that I actually haven't read that book yet. It's on my shelf. I, I know that's what it's about. And um, I'm really interested in that. So, so that is a sense in which there's some overlap. I don't have as much here. I don't have as many like fun terms and stuff for you as I did with the other questions. <laughs> no, you're good, man. That that's just, I thought that was a super interesting thing just because even even within my own experience of kind of diving into some more of this like uh, psychology stuff, going through uh, therapy with Sid and all this kind of stuff, um, contemplative practice comes up over and over and over again. So I feel like the overlap there is just insanely huge and is way helpful. <laughs> so any, any little yeah. bit is, any little bit is good, but uh, Dan, like this, this has been freaking awesome, man. And thank you for letting us take so much of your, your time today. My pleasure. Um, yeah. I know one thing that I just want to point our listeners to real quick is a super practical example of this overlap of psychology and theology. Dan did an awesome series on 
end times anxiety where he interviewed a whole bunch of people. It's like a three or four part series, right? On a, you have, uh, you have permission yeah. podcast. Um, and it was awesome. That, that was great. Uh, and yeah, that was like one particular overlap of like what's going on with mental health in some of these people who had a hard time with like rapture theology, uh, which is my own personal story. So that I get into a little bit of that as well and found some really, cool helpful interesting stuff sweet yeah it was, it was great it was super helpful i know it it overlapped for me i sent it to a bunch of people that were like holy shit like this isn't just me i'm not crazy uh so really good so if that sounds appealing to you dear listener please go check it out you have permission end times anxiety uh but outside of that dan where where can people find you if they want to get connected to what you're doing yeah, I mean, you have permission is mostly what I do. Um, and there's a, a website, dancokewords.com, which has a link to that. And uh, there's an email address on there. And sure, let me know whatever. Sweet, Follow man. me on Instagram. It's mostly photos of my son. Yes, baby you know? Soren. Yeah. Which has been awesome, by the way, because I, I keep being like, hey, Noel, which is my wife, check out, you know, this cute baby. Don't you want one too? <laughs> Speaking of plausibility structures, if you get your wife around more people who are having babies, she will feel more likely be like, oh, yeah, it is time to have a baby. Use, there we go. use psychology, use psychology <laughs> for your own benefit, Josh. There we go, Dan. <laughs> and the benefit for Josh is that Noel doesn't really listen to the podcast, so he's going to get away with this conversation nice. scot-free. <laughs> yeah, yeah my, wife, my wife doesn't listen to my podcast either. Right on. Yeah, Marty, I don't think Kaylin doesn't really listen either, does she? No, but uh, she found out that her mom does. Like, her mom has listened on occasion. So, hello, Renee. Um, and Caitlin felt really bad. Like, she was like, <laughs> she's like, I guess I just don't have an excuse anymore to not at least listen to one episode if my mom listens to the podcast on one occasion. One episode, sure. Yeah, you could pick out one that you think she'd like or whatever. That's good. Yeah, I think I think she would especially like anything that has to do, anything that we did with, uh, with Tom Ord, I think that she would. Oh, uh, dope. It, that would Love probably him. for her be the last one that she listened to because I think it would be so far out of the out, out, out on the right wing for her that like she's like I can't believe like this is even a thing. So <laughs> yeah, I I occasionally send ask my wife to listen to ones that I think she would be particularly interested in based on her own story. Yeah. She doesn't always do it though. It's fine. I don't blame her. <laughs> I don't hold it against her. Yeah. Right? They're long, right. man. They're long episodes. Yeah. Oh yeah. sure. Sure. She has to listen to me talk all the time. Like, <laughs> why would she want to listen to more of it? You know? Dude, that's yeah. literally the preview. Yeah. That's literally what Noelle says. She's like, I already heard you say all this crap before. Why would I go listen? Jaffrey tells me that all the time. She's like, I hear you talking about this stuff all the time. I don't need to listen to the podcast. Right. Fair, Fair well, enough. Yeah. Sweet guys. Well, be sure to go check out uh, Dan's podcast. You have permission. It's great, and you'll find it super helpful. And uh, outside of that, again, Dan, thanks for your time, man. Yeah, and as you. always, go Caps. And go Blackhawks. And San Jose Sharks, apparently. Yeah, it's fine. I just just go Warriors. You know. There we go. <laughs> go Giants, you know. Go Baseball Giants. Those All right. are my teams. All right. There we go. See you guys. See you, Dan. See you. Uh...